Welcome to Narratives of Asia. This episode is part of a collaboration between UCL African Conference and UCL Asiatic Affairs, where students and professionals gather around the table to connect and talk about Asia-Africa relations, specifically through the lens of China's influence and impact on Africa. In this collaboration, we seek to open constructive conversations on geopolitics and history that tie the two continents together. Hello everyone, I'm Kareen, a second-year European Social and Political Studies student, and I'll be your host for today. Joining me today is Angela, my co-host, who is also a second-year European Social and Political Studies student. Previously, we discussed China-Africa relations with UCL Africa Conference team, and it definitely piqued our interest to learn more about Africa's background, especially looking at investments and ground-up initiatives. We have a special guest joining us today for our podcast, Doris Okenwa. We know her as one of the staff at UCL's Anthropology Department, but she has also done further areas of research. Doris, could you share with us more about your background and your research interests? Hi, thank you for having me. Great to be talking to you guys and your work is very interesting. So I'm Doris Okenwa and um, I got my PhD from the Department of Anthropology at LSE. And my work was about natural resources in Africa with a case study on Kenya, the recent or fairly recent oil discovery in Kenya. This was around 2012 when the discovery was done. And so a couple of years after, I decided to follow up and see what was happening. Um, I'm Nigerian, and um, prior to my PhD, I worked as a journalist for a number of years, um, almost 10 years. And I have the first-hand experience of the oil industry in Nigeria, the challenges, the political economy, social impacts, and all that. So when this new hydrocarbon boom started happening in East Africa, I thought it would be interesting to see what's new, what's changed, what are the lessons um, learned, you know, how will corporations, how will national governments and communities do things differently or the same. And so Kenya was a perfect opportunity to explore that. And the region where the oil was discovered is Trukana County, northern Kenya, predominantly inhabited by pastoralists. And it was, again, interesting from an anthropological point of view to see what the interaction would be. Pastoralism meets oil. Of course, there are different life worlds. There are different kind of, kinds of economic opportunities going on in Trukana. But pastoralism is still a mainstay, it's still the mainstay economy, mostly subsistence and um, nomadic or transhuman, if you like. And what I found was that my thesis is entitled Impermanent Development. What I found is that natural resource development in terms of oil or the extractives industry more broadly is impermanent. And it's a kind of false hope, if you like, because the narrative is often development, right? It's, it's articulated around development still, which is a big theme in, in Africa, or African political economy, and it's always a justification for large-scale infrastructural developments, foreign investments, development aid, and all that. It's all about poverty alleviation, livelihoods, economic diversification, and all that. But historically, 
um, oil has not worked. Now, and I wouldn't go into the whole resource curse narrative, you know, which is a prominent theme in um, the oil discourse, right? <laughs> I see, Angela, you're connecting with that. So it's the idea that resource-rich countries, you know, have this course. It's a re- resource curse where there is poverty amidst plenty, you know, and examples abound, again, back to my own home country, Nigeria, But I take a broader and more nuanced view to that. But I I was keen to move away from that narrative and from victims and villains, if you like, villains, if you like, and see what else is going on and how we can approach this uh, differently. But development still is at the heart of this, creating jobs, creating opportunities. So oil has been discovered in this um, region that is one of the most marginalized in Kenya. And suddenly, you know, there was this crude oil, crude awakening, if you like, and Turkana became the new economic zone, the new hub with with prospects and speculations about imagined futures where this resource, if it moves on to full production, will provide jobs, um, open up infrastructural development and all that. In the same area, you also have... um, renewable energy projects happening, wind power, solar, and all that, you know. But what I found is that it was a permanent. And another key finding from my research was that the so-called informal economy, right, which we would or has often been considered impermanent, is actually the most stable, you know. So the pastoralists that, you know, Pastoralism sector is considered unstable. They um, move around a lot and all. It's actually quite sophisticatedly stable in its own way, even though there are weather challenges um, and all that. And the small scale industries and all are actually quite more stable. And why why did I come to that um, conclusion? In fact, it was concluded for me because the oil company pulled out or started having challenge. It's a speculative game, isn't it? You know, it's all about prospecting, you know. And at the end of the day, you find that the oil industry in itself is predicated on booms and busts. So it is inherently impermanent. It's inherently unstable. So when you have corporate social uh, responsibility um, projects or local content or development projects based around a sector that is indeterminate, then that already flags um, a big question mark, you know. And so going forward, you might want to ask, so what then? So so what do we do? <laughs> I don't know. I'm an anthropologist and we're very good at... Um, you know, we're not very prescriptive. We're not good at making um, definitive um, recommendations. But one place to look at is to see how, and a lot of scholars have looked at this, to see how, you know, we can build sectors that are not dependent on the oil economy, you know, sectors that can that can stand alone. And let's not even look at just oil, even infrastructure, Right. You have this win win narrative of roads and big infrastructural projects. And in a book that I co-authored with a couple of um, other brilliant scholars on land investments and politics in Eastern Africa, though we looked at East Africa, we also sort of came to the same conclusion that it wasn't quite clear who the beneficiaries of these investments, you know, are for. So that's just a bit about, you know, what I've what I've done with my work. Um, thank you for that. Thank you for joining us today, Doris. Um, so one of our starting questions is actually to 
asked about um, a bit more about the book that you actually mentioned and I think just now you've given a really great overview of the background to your research and specifically on um, the sort of the main themes of development in Africa and I think just based on what you mentioned very the very very beginning about um, infrastructure and development kind of promising things like false hope we're just wondering how is this sort of um, experienced by the people on the ground? So going to the theme of impermanence, um, the impermanent framework I tried to develop in, in, in my work and that we also teased out in the um, co-edited volume. Let's take infrastructure, for example. I'd argue that infrastructure is not synonymous with economic growth, but the assumption is that it is. The assumption is that there will be a trickle-down effect. You know, so if you build it, if, if you if you develop these big structures, whether it's railway or roads and all sorts of huge projects, or in the case of in the case of oil, you know, develop the sector and see what other subsectors that would that would emerge from it. It doesn't always work. It's not synonymous because investors investors have a business plan. It is business, right? So big business is just that. It is business. Investment is business. It is not charity. Even though we have all these corporate social responsibility models attached to, say, oil investment, for example, it is still a calculated risk. It is still done based on certain investment indices, you know. So infrastructure is not always synonymous with growth. And if it if it was, then we'd have seen an exponential growth where the numbers actually add up. Because the numbers often do not add up. And then again, infrastructure, it is a capital-intensive development on the one hand, hence the foreign investments and partnerships. But on the other hand, it's I think that its full maximization also depends on income levels and capital assets. So if you create these structures where people do not have the capacity to access them, then it becomes a problem. So in essence, maybe investments and infrastructure must go hand in hand with providing capital support for those it is supposedly intended for, which is where we have the problem between winners and losers, right, who the beneficiaries are. So say you have, um, in the case of my field work, for example, or in the work that we've done, you have um, projects, for example, or, or jobs, right? Jobs is the big thing. Job, jobs in itself is a kind of development. The people that can access that, the people that have capital, you know, whether it's social capital, um, educational capital, or, you know, financial capital to access these things are a few. So it creates some sort of inequality. So the benefits sometimes are embedded with certain kinds of um certain kinds of inequalities. And then you also have arguments about elite capture, you know, elite capture accountability and all that, you know, who is able to manage and monitor um, these things and the inequalities that emerge. It's also very um, spatial. So in oil development, for example, you have development around the particular areas where the oil is, you know. So this narrative of host communities, right? So say my fieldwork, Trukana, is the host community, but then Trukana is huge, and the oil is basically that the oil development is basically happening around the you, you know the, the, the eastern region, and even within the eastern region, there are particular places you know where the oil fields are. So what then happens to the other region? So it's not as straightforward as it is. That's the point, you know. So you'd always have winners and losers in these things based on the capacity people have to access it, you know. 
So these are some of the challenges. And then again, broad, broad projects, you know, do not often have trickle down effects. And what kinds of projects are these? Oftentimes they are top down. Some have called it white elephants, you know. So the narrative of participation and inclusion is old. It's a tale as old as time in development processes of any kind, whether extractives or otherwise. But it's vital. It, it, it is vital. It's inescapable, as cliche as participation might sound, you know, because a lot of these um, ideas, a lot of these benefits are top down, you know. And, and so how it actually works, what people actually do and how it infiltrates or impacts people's lives on a day-to-day basis in the actual sense of the word, the numbers are a bit ambiguous in that sense. I think speaking about the winners and losers that you mentioned, I think it reminds us a lot about the stakeholders that are involved often in these projects. So I wanted to start with like between the citizens themselves, um, could you tell us more about how investments could affect the relationships between the communities on the ground and whether there's uh, instances of, for example, or a rush for land and resources as well? Oh, yes, totally. Um, yes, there is a, there's been a rush for land um, in Africa, a renewed rush for land and resources in, in Africa in the, last, in the last decade. But it also comes down to the framing of these investments and different kinds of framings, right? So how governments frame these investments as, again, the win-win for all, and the idea of resources in waiting, you know, often happening in communities that have been erstwhile marginalized. But then oftentimes you find that it clashes with local framings of what resources are. So in Trukana, for example, where um, I conducted my field work, land is valuable, it's not empty. You might go there. It's 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 not seventy seven um, square kilometer hectares of land. It's a it's a lot. It, it's dry. But then one one way of seeing would be this vast resource waiting, and even better still, oil has been discovered. But the land where that oil was discovered could be, as in the case of Tukana, in some parts, very viable grazing land for the pastoralists. So. You frame um, investments and benefits based on what is underneath the land. So are you saying that it was invaluable before then? Meanwhile, the locals that use that land for um, livestock, livestock grazing have another you know, kind of livelihood meaning for land or cultural connections and what have you, you know. So land is never just empty and the meaning of resources differ across board. You know, and um, that's where some of the tensions, you know, come from. And even within the communities, of course, you have people that would say, yeah, why not? We have all these lands, build things on it, you know. Another thing I found is that there is an emphasis on filling up space, if you like, as I describe it, you know, building up the environment. Again, this idea of land in waiting, resource in waiting, you know, so build it up. 
And you have a sector of the community that agree, you know, let's build roads, let's build infrastructure, let's develop. And development in that sense is very construction based, very concrete based, very permanent based. You know, again, going back to the title of my work in permanent development and the pursuit of permanence, you know, permanent livelihoods, but also permanent structures, right? Because if you even look at the, uh, shall we say, traditional houses um, in, in Trukan, that for some people it connotes the idea of underdevelopment. You know, these are very temporary structures that um, are very convenient for pastoralists. So you also have this rush of building up the environment, you know, filling up, filling up the space as a marker, as a marker of development. But what exactly that infrastructure does, that development does, you know, the the stability or the duration of the jobs, the impact of the buildings and the infrastructure that is the more ambiguous part you know then have a development effect if you like you know that development effect where um you have the aesthetics that the aesthetics happening you know but the 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 numbers in terms of impact are a bit more ambiguous so, so yes, the impacts are, are are ambiguous. But if you go back to the flip side and look at the aims and how and the sort of starting point of these developments. So you mentioned the point about um how government frame these resources and frame these uh, resources and development as like valuable for the land. How was this received by the people, um, and the communities? For example, for the pastoralists, um, for the development to be introduced to where they are into their, to their communities, to where they're living. How is this received by them, um? And again, based on um, the whole theme about permanency and how um, permanency being one of the the aim of development being something um, kind of keeping capital where it is and doing good, um, how is this received by the people? Is it welcomed? Um, you mentioned about tensions and how is this sort of resolved amongst the people between the people and the state? Um, there are different sides to it, of course. So let's talk about evidence, right? Let's start with evidence, which is a big part of the new wave of ethical capitalism, right? So if you look at the motivation for me even going down this road, it was to see what's different. I come from a a country where oil has a very, very problematic history and you have these new um, oil developments and discoveries happening elsewhere. So what's new, what has changed? And um, oil discovery was happening in Kenya in an era of ethical capitalism, ethical extraction. And the same thing goes again for other forms of development, like we did in our our book, whether it's Ethiopia or, or other parts of Eastern Africa. This rush for land and resources happening again, it's coming at a time of ethical capitalism where corporations have a mandate. It's not part of their remits. You know, you might call it corporate social responsibility or social investments. It's a remit to leave the communities better, so to change the story, right, to change the story. So it's not, it's not legal. It's not legally binding, but it is a requirement, right? So even for some corporations to access funding and all that, they have to build this component into their business plan. So if you go back to what I said earlier, it is business. And moving from evidence, it also takes us to bringing corporations into development, right? So it becomes very murky, what is the role of government? What is the role of corporations? Are corporations now doing development? Are corporations building schools? Or should it be government? You know, where is the state? 
So you then have this, of course, neoliberal emergence of development and then moving the narrative, moving towards trade, not aid, which is where China features largely, you know, moving away from handouts, moving away from the classic boreholes and education and building um, dispensaries and hospitals and all that. But, you know, let it be a trade partnership, let it be something more concrete than the, than the classic, you know. So on the one hand, you have the demand for evidence, um, which again, I feel rises as permanence. What can we point to that you as an organization, you as a corporation has done here? And recall that the problematic history of development in general in Africa is that it doesn't quite stay, right? You know, these boreholes work today, it doesn't work tomorrow. So much money has gone into aid. It goes in corruption, it goes here, it goes there. You know, so whether it's an organization or a corporation doing all, what is the evidence, long-term, long-lasting evidence, what can we point to that? shows yes you have left these communities behind so as you are extracting you are also leaving something behind and yes even though the narrative has been moving for a long time now towards um, aid not trade the benefits are still couched in the same it's still articulated in the same um, way under that development um, headline you know So you find that what corporations are doing are still within the development loophole, you know. So it's almost as if corporations have become the new NGOs. And so even if you're um, mobilizing communities, the so-called capacity building, community rights, participation and all, they still, a lot of communities still articulate the benefits they want or their expectations in terms of development. So pointing towards evidence. And that then limits the scope of what can actually be done because we still come back to what can we point to. And then you have signposts all over the place, right? The all companies name, brandishing the school they have built, the roads they have built, the water pumps they have built and all. As part of a more long-term permanent benefits, you have a lot of focus, um, interest in um entrepreneurship you know so raising neoliberal citizens um small small scale investments small and medium enterprises businesses education and all that um unfortunately it's still dependent on the sector and so when the oil company closes down what then happens afterwards because this is a business model the oil company is not going to keep on doing development when they've left or when the business is no longer viable. So if there is a boom, just the way you have booms and busts in the oil market more broadly, you also have booms and busts of development. So when the oil company is down, um, when it is no longer viable, they move on. So what then happens to all the sectors and businesses that have a reason and you have this boon of jobs and small businesses and all. Afterwards, it becomes, you know, um, problematic. But then that doesn't mean that there hasn't, you know, been benefits. People will tell you up front in Trucana that, you know, there have been some tangible impacts in terms of um, infrastructural development, specifically some roads, but most of the roads are roads that lead to the to the oil wells, you know, most of the roads lead to the oil wells. Pastoralists, some of them have gotten uh, jobs, 
you know, security jobs and all. Um, some have received some money and restocked their um, restocked their herd and all, but land still remains very contentious. Um, what was happening, I'll give you a more concrete example. Um, what was happening in terms of benefits was at the start, it was, the, you know, the oil company would meet with people, meet with um, different villages around the oil well, tell them what they want to do and negotiate some kind of benefit. So for an oil well, for example, there might be schools attached, dormitories, some building, water projects and all. But much later, people started demanding more and you have some... Um, activists you know that are part of the community they're like no this doesn't quite add up so some monetary um, benefits was attached but then the question is how did you come to that you know because it's not the villagers that fix that amount so if you say um seven million kenyan shillings you know it's about seventy thousand um, us dollars I, I i think how did you you know how did you come to that who is setting who is setting the tone who is who is in charge you know and then within the community of course you would have um tensions of how it will be spent you know who is in charge and all and of course it's inevitable because i mean where so social life doesn't come without um doesn't come without contentions you know so these are some of the problems where ethics in itself is good but then ethics becomes uh, ethics somehow limits itself because of its narrative, the need for evidence, the need for permanence, then begins to look as if it's perfunctory, you know. And at the end of the day, we need to call it what it is. This is a business model. It's a business choice. You know, the calculation to build that well, to give that money, to develop um, entrepreneurs and all that, you know. It's not the company's job. It is part of their business model. So we have to really question responsibility here, you know, across board, not just corporate social responsibility, but other forms of responsibility of the community leaders themselves, you know, the their county leaders, the national governments. Uh, we've seen a situation which a lot of scholars um, of, you know, corporate social responsibility or community dimensions of the oil industry or infrastructure, big developments and all that have touched upon, you know, are we leaving communities to their own devices and moving responsibility, you know, to another, to another domain? Because whose job is it, you know, to whose job is it to, to to do these things you know i recall a meeting i attended um in nairobi between some government officials and um various oil companies working in the country and a government official was saying you know you have to make sure that you know those marginalized people in this um communities benefits um, but then i asked whose responsibility is it first of all who marginalized them in the first place you know, what are the social and economic and political structures that left some areas marginalized for years, as in the case of Trukana, as in the case of a lot of other places, you know, where these big investment boons are happening, you know. Um, and then whose responsibility is it to make it okay because the company wouldn't stay there forever? And in some cases, if, if they do, you have the inequalities that come with that, you know, the extraction, as it were without leaving anything behind beyond the um, perfunctory structures you can point to and say this is what development is you know so it's about rethinking what we categorize as development we're still sort of stuck in that loop of development being articulated around particular things you know
that is all the time we have for today. Thank you all for tuning in to Trade Not Aid, Ethical Capitalism and Rearticulation of African Development with Doris Okenwa. We will be continuing the conversation on African investment and development in the following episode, which looks further at the concept of resource permanency and the role played by cultural and demographic tensions between social sets in shaping the future of development in Africa. Thank you all listeners for tuning in to this episode of Narratives of Asia. Dear listener, if you found this episode to be educational and learned something from this, do recommend this podcast to your friends and family by word of mouth or on social media. Tag us at UCL Asiatic Affairs on Instagram or Facebook. We would love to hear all of your thoughts on this episode. If you are interested in joining us on raising conversation about a certain topic related to Asia, don't be shy. Drop a message on our social media or email us at uclasiaticaffairs at gmail.com. I swear we're a cool bunch. Again, thank you so much for staying with us and stay tuned for another episode. We are Asiatic Affairs and this is Narratives of Asia.